Well, I'm Jay Gabler from The Current's Rock and Roll Book Club and The Current Music News. And I am thrilled to be joined today by author Maria Sherman, whose new book is Larger Than Life, a history of boy bands from NKOTB to BTS. I just read this book and really enjoyed it. Maria, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me and thank you for screaming the, <laughs> the title of the book because not enough people are shouting at me or with me rather when I get really excited about it. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think you might have found the only way in the year 2020 to write a book where you say, here's what my book is about, men. And everybody's like, yes, <laughs> the best men. But you distinguish between boy bands and like, man bands or dude bands mm -hmm. what's the special appeal of the boy band yeah there are there are a few reasons why there's sort of a division between boy bands and, and man bands and, and why boy bands are this sort of attractive um enthusiastic force of of pure joy uh, i probably use joy far too many times to describe this music in this book um, but it's essentially that they're young men who write songs that are essentially girl worship. It's just supposed to make you feel good. There's nothing sort of like intimidating about them or what they do. There isn't a lot of adultness in, in a lot of what they do. You have love songs that are like about crushes. They're not about any sort of like adult sensuality or sexuality. Um, and it's just wholesome fun. I guess the wholesome aspect of it is the real division. And you write about how... Boy bands, it's sort of, it's a different way of expressing masculinity, mm -hmm. right? They're still male, mm -hmm. but don't necessarily have all the trappings of masculinity mm -hmm. that, you know, a traditional rock band might have, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that is based on on how they're formed. I mean, they're not playing instruments. And I think like rock bands are, are that sort of image of machismo. And if you're a uh, young boy dancing and you're not very muscular, <laughs> there, there, there's an obvious difference there. And they're sort of looked at in a way that a lot of like female pop acts are looked at. There's this sort of like flipping of, of the gaze there that doesn't typically exist um, in rock bands or like sort of R&B male adult groups. And yeah, I, I think they just sort of offer an alternative to like traditional masculine figures. I mean, there are no, there are no Fabios on stage in, in the boy band world. They're like just, you know, high cheekbone, darling <laughs> young men. Uh, yeah. So there are boy bands and then there are girl groups. Mm -hmm. And you could imagine, at least I could imagine, a companion volume that would focus on girl groups. But girl groups aren't necessarily, the history of girl groups isn't necessarily just a mirror image version of the history of boy bands. What, right. what do you see as being similar to and different than those two histories? Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating and I would love to do a girl group book or somebody should because I think that you, you think of like big moments in, in girl group history in the same way you think of big moments in boy band history. However, there are fewer. And um, I think a lot of that just sort of speaks to how we sexualize women musicians versus how we sexualize man musicians. Like girls don't get to be girls for as long of a period of time in their career when they're sort of in the public eye. And then of course, if they're performing R&B songs that a woman performing R&B song is sort of immediately sexualized. Whereas you can have sort of like um, white youngins such as Backstreet Boys doing R&B songs and, and it's not immediately seen as like inherently sexual. And 
for whatever reason, and this is something that I like, I'm very curious about, and I'm still sort of interrogating, girl groups don't seem to have the same sort of longevity, or they don't happen with as much frequency. In the book, I talk a little bit about how boy bands kind of crop up every five years, and they last for five years. There's like, if you're into conspiracy-based numerology, then like, this is the book for you. Um, but girl groups don't really have that. And um, I guess that's hap- it's changing a little bit now with, with K-pop. There's like the girl group Blackpink, who... I think when their new album comes out later this year, it might be something that you and, and your listeners are interested in interrogating. But yeah, they just don't sort of happen with the same sort of frequency. And I don't know enough about them to if there are like the same sort of Svengali types behind the scenes controlling them. But I imagine they probably are if they're like young women sort of built in a similar way that boy bands are. I mean, I guess in terms of being sexualized, if you're Backstreet Boys, you have to kind of ask the musical question, am I sexual? <laughs> and you, you think about it. Well, in that case, yes. The answer is yes. You know, Uh-oh, but yeah. I walked into that one. <laughs> but speak of those Svengali's. So you do talk mm-hmm. in uh, your book about the uh, sort of yeah, as you say, the Svengali's, the mm-hmm. the business people who kind of put these packages together to be mm-hmm. these boy bands. Um, I'd be curious in hearing a little bit more about the songwriters and producers who actually are generally very responsible for creating the music mm-hmm. that boy bands produce. Some boy bands, handsome you know, yeah. are self-contained, <laughs> but, but so many others do rely on big producers and songwriters. Who are some of the big names that people need to know in terms of the songwriters and producers behind boy bands? Yeah, I sort of immediately jumped to Max Martin, who I think most people are familiar with as, as the Swedish sort of powerhouse behind a lot of Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, but also Britney Spears and just sort of like the Orlando um, contingency, the sort of Disney child star turn humongous pop star turned end of the music industry because those records sold too much and they were too expensive. And he has his like own sort of like cadre of prodigies, I would say. Like there are a couple studios in Stockholm and it's so interesting that it's like isolated to Stockholm, but like historically great pop songwriters out of Sweden who've continued on in like his tradition. Um, and there's this guy I, who I mentioned in the book, Saban Kocha, who does a lot of songs for like Demi Lovato and, and female pop stars now, but also wrote a huge chunk of One Direction songs. And also like in K-pop, it's very common for them to use Swedish songwriters. So it's, it's interesting to see how many players continue to crop up in the story. And that was probably the most sort of revealing thing about this book was like, was just realizing like, wow, Simon Cowell really in the boy band story is like, to me as an American, I think of him as American Idol, but he sort of exists throughout like the decades of, of creating boy bands and, and like Max Martin kind of appearing over the decades. It's, it's really fascinating. Let's talk a little bit more about K-pop, which I it sort of strikes me kind of represents the apotheosis of the boy band aesthetic. And as, as you say, kind of a new model of girl groups, mm-hmm. which is very similar to the boy bands that we know here in the States. Um, very sort of pop friendly, very authentic in their sort of you know joy in their stage presentation, but also extremely manufactured and very mm-hmm. tightly controlled in terms of what their relationships can be, what their public personas can be. Do you see it that way as well, that K-pop has sort of reached a peak, a pinnacle of what boy bands have been moving towards for the past decades? I don't want to say it's a peak because I would just want this music to continue to grow <laughs> and, and, and maybe be uh, considered more um, sort of legitimate or have like this boy band fandom be sort of validated in the way that other pop music fandom seems to be or is at least talked about in a way that it doesn't seem like I'm tiptoeing around a, a conversation of misogyny or just like just um, lack of care for the interest of, of young women in particular. 
Um, but they definitely have shown like a certain evolution in the sort of short boy band story in a way that I certainly wasn't expecting. And I don't know if, if many people were the idea that a boy band wouldn't have to be white to have this sort of like, or at least ubiquity in, in Western Anglophonic countries that they could also continue to sort of um, contort and play with ideas of masculinity through wearing sort of an androgynous dress and, and makeup in, in some forms, though that can be sort of sticky territory in, in sort of terms of Orientalist images. Um, but, for, but for the most part, they sort of like take a lot of ideas that we're very familiar with in the boy band and sort of just explode them. It's also very interesting that a group like BTS is founded in, in hip hop and, and do a lot of sort of like trap music, which doesn't isn't really boy band like boy bands are ballads and like power <laughs> anthems you know um so it is it is really interesting to see that change and i guess like maybe the most obvious or the biggest change is that they're not performing exclusively in english and that's a very recent pop fascination personally i kind of track it from like the success of something like despacito sort of showing that people didn't or at least americans i should say didn't really require um english language music to be their like the biggest pop music though there are a lot of other factors in, in that as well well speaking of hip-hop uh you have a section at the end of the book on the future of the boy band and some up-and-coming boy bands and you mentioned brockhampton as one yes. example of a band that might wear the mantle of the future of boy bands can you talk a little bit more about why that is and what's different and at the same time similar about brockhampton yeah, Brockhampton is so fascinating to me. And I hope someone writes a book about Brockhampton. In fact, Kevin Abstract, sort of the figurehead of Brockhampton, should do it himself. Um, and, and I sort of included them because they identify as a boy band, which in and of itself is not a very boy band thing to do. Like a lot of boy bands, when they grow up, they sort of want to individuate and sort of separate themselves from the group and, and mature and become like, a, like men, I guess, instead of boys. And, and the fact that Brockhampton is sort of celebrating that, but also showing that they can be sort of a new form of a boy band in that they are hip hop based, in that there's 13 of them sometimes. Every time I watch an interview with them, I'm really sort of charmed to hear them be like, how many of us are there? Like looking around, but uh, th that they have so many boys that they um, also like um, lyrically are, are like more openly sexual, obviously. I think that's also something that sort of lends itself to hip hop and, and just sort of like taking the idea of a boy band on his head and, and sort of cla claiming boy bandness based on the fact that they want to be a boy band. They want to be sort of perceived that way and, and flipping it on its head. And I think that's to me, sort of integral in the boy band story is this like continued evolution, this continued like, I know a boy band when I see it, but no boy band is exactly like the one that came 10 years before them. And I think that they're continuing that trajectory. And also in an interesting way where like, when I think of a boy band now, I think of K-pop um, and they're sort of existing in that time that too, which is very interesting. Yeah, and I guess when you think about the age of those artists in Brockhampton, you know, they've never really known a world where there's not new kids on the block. Yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so they might you know be thinking, I, yeah, I would like some of that same energy that you associate with a band like Backstreet Boys, mm -hmm. but you know we're gonna have our own approach to it. And they also, if live, like their audience is is very heavily female, so it's it's very much like they have that sort of thing ingrained. But it's also very interesting because I get excited when I go to a Brockhampton show, and it's just it, it's also like a lot more diverse than some other boy band concerts I've been to in the past, and that's just very exciting. It just seems like. They're like a, a symbol or an emblem of, of what the boy band story is going to be and how it's going to continue to evolve and not have these sort of like hard and fast um, race gender lines that it sometimes can have. Yeah, oh well, sure. I mean, you write in the book about how 
there's always, you know, the, the one member of the boy band who seems most vaguely ethnic, right? Gets yeah. called, you know, the shy one, the mysterious one. That has to be like their personality. Yeah, and there's a One Direction music video for Drag Me Down where they literally label Zayn as the mysterious one. And I remember watching that and I was like, oh God, why didn't anybody stop this from happening? <laughs> he was out of the band. He was like going to be gone within yeah. a couple months. So maybe it was just like, all right. <laughs> yeah, he was like, yeah, just um, whatever. <laughs> check him out here. Yep, see ya. <laughs> well, so as someone who has gone perhaps deeper on boy bands than, you know, just about anyone else uh, in the country, what would you say are some maybe underappreciated boy bands, right? People know the big ones. They know the, you know, the, the One Directions, the New Kids, the NSYNCs. But who are some bands that you would say, hey, you know what, if you like the whole boy band thing, check out this group. Oh gosh, there are so many. And I feel like you have to almost section them off by like decade or country. Uh, one of the most fascinating things and certainly the most challenging thing about writing this book was making sure that it spoke to a North American audience because obviously I'm an American and, and this this is my perception of, of boy bandhood and you can disagree with me as I know you have with, with Hanson uh, not being a one hit wonder, but but sort of in, um, exploring other countries' boy bands and, and learning to love them. Like even like Magneto was kind of new to me because I'm uh, was also not like an 80s baby. Um, uh, in in K-pop, I'm really obsessed with this boy band called ATs because they have this guy who has such a like low voice. He sounds like Ian Curtis of Joy Division to me, and it's just like the coolest thing ever to have this like pop hip hop band that's doing this thing that feels like such a like a post punk tradition. God, I, I'm getting overwhelmed and a little bit flustered here. I, this is like my favorite subject matter. Um, I also sort of realized that even though I kind of joke about them in the book, there are some bands of the Y2K era that though they only had a hit or two really are worth checking out again and like listening to their other stuff. Like I've found myself to be a sort of late in life O-Town fan. Like after writing this book, listening to more O-Town and being like, oh, this is some charming stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Glad you gave a little love to B.B. Mac. Oh, B.B. Mac was excellent. Yeah, I loved B.B. Mac, but do I remember most of their songs? <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, they're great. And they played instruments, um, which is pretty exciting. So to go to the other extreme, so when I talked about the, the book on air with Jill Riley, we always talk into a song after our book club segment. And so Jill got to pick, being the DJ, and she picked Hangin' Tough by New Kids on the Block yeah. to play, and no one was sad about it. As a matter of fact, people were very excited about it. Yeah. Uh, but that said, I'm curious to know if you were going to pick just one song, the paradigmatic boy band song to play after talking about a book like this. What would be the one song to you that says boy band? Uh, maybe this is a cop out, but it has to be larger than life. That's, it just has that feeling of like, it's, it's so of its time. It's not trying to be a classic though. I think arguably it's become something of like a karaoke wedding reception classic, but it is just, big and it feels good and it's kind of silly and I hope people listen to it and dance without embarrassment every time they hear it because that's certainly my reaction and that's what boy bands are all about. Perfect. Well, thank you, Maria, for taking a few minutes to talk about this delightful subject today. Congrats on the new book and can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. Oh, yeah.